Part 2. Objects in Motion. 21 to 28 AR. Chapter 6. Krug. Caleb and Krug, daughter of the warlord of the city of Krug, princess of the nation of Yodia, and the most beautiful woman east of the mighty Marnan River, was shopping when she met the strange Argivian. She had sampled the new shipment of plums from the Yodian coastal provinces and had been shown the sheerest and most colorful of fabrics from Zegon. She had been offered the freshest of spices from far-off Almaz and the largest of the great clawed river prawns of the upper Marden. A group of Sardian dwarfs offered to sell her golden earrings, which they swore once belonged to their greatest empress. A nomad woman dressed in scarves offered to predict the princess's fortune from the lines on her palms. And all this was done with great ceremony and respect, which Kegla found extremely pleasing. There were, after all, advantages to being a princess. She examined handfuls of lustrous ice stones of sarin, gems crystal clear and hard as steel. She ran her fingers over the thick weaves of phalaji rugs imported from Tomakul. A minstrel serenaded her with verses that he swore he made up on the spot to honor her. A group of street jesters built a human pyramid on her behalf. Storekeepers left their stores with samples of food, linen, or crafts they wanted to show to the most important woman in the city of Krug. But Caleb and Krug had a purpose to her journey through the merchant's quarter. This was no whimsical spree, though if it was, none would dare to question it, except perhaps her father, who was a bit of a grump about such things. She held that purpose in a small clasped purse clutched close to her breast. She had not told her father the reason for her journey, nor had she informed the guards assigned to protect her person, nor even the redoubtable matron who served as her official chaperone on such larks. But she had a purpose, and that goal brought a spring to her step. At each stop during her itinerary, she asked about the other shops nearby. There were taverns, clothing shops, hat makers, gem crafters, bead stringers, and all manner of shops, large and small. But only when someone mentioned a clockmaker did her dark brown eyes light up. That would be her next stop, she informed the matron, who in turn told the guards, who in turn asked for directions and cleared a path through the rival for her royal highness's visit. The clockmaker's shop was a small one, even by the crowded standards of the crowded merchant district of Crewe. It was a narrow two-story building tucked between a blacksmith's forge and a jeweler. The first floor was made smaller still by a low counter that ran most of the way across the width of the room, separating the clockmaker's workshop from the display and customers. The guards remained outside, but only an act of the gods would keep the matron from her place, glued securely to the princess's side. Kegel's nose wrinkled as she entered the shop. It smelled of wooden oil and other things she could not put a name to and would rather not try. There was a noise, one clock ticking with an amusing distraction. Ten was an irritation, and here there were no fewer than twenty mounted along the right and left walls. Great pendulums swung back and forth in smooth rhythms, while other timepieces chimed softly to indicate the passage of each fleeting instant. It was both charming and overwhelming. The clockmaker was typical of his breed. Well-fed, as her father would say, turning the reference from one concerning another's health to an endorsement of his own farming policies. Actually, this fellow was a bit more than well-fed, verging on stout. He could give the matron a run for her money in the heft department, and Kayla wondered for a moment if all three of them could stand to be in the same building. In addition to being stout, the clockmaker was balding, with gray hair showing at the temples. He wore a set of Argivan spectacles common to those crafts requiring detailed work. He was dressed in an oil-spattered shirt covered only partially by a heavy leather vest. The vest either belonged to a younger relation or had been purchased when the clockmaker was thinner. Your most esteemed highness, burbled the clockmaker. Groveling was a typical greeting for the princess and crew. Entire workshops and stores came to a screeching halt at her entrance as the staffs bowed, scraped, and fawned. The clockmaker twittered with the best of them. I cannot believe how fortunate we are to have your illustrious presence gracing my humble shop, he murmured in a rapid cadence. I am honored, 
truly honored. You make clocks? She said sweetly, and the clockmaker's eyes lit up as if she had just announced the arrival of the gods. Yes, yes, he said empathetically. This is the house of Rusko, home of the clocks of Rusko, and we bid you welcome. Is our most radiant majesty interest in a time-keeping mechanism? No, said Kayla shortly. Indeed, she could imagine few things more irritating than clocks. They were necessary, she realized, for those poor, sad people who had to be at a certain place at a certain time. But that did not apply to her. Events began when she arrived, and everyone else was ready for her. She set down the class bag on the counter and opened it. I have an item here in need of repair. It belonged to my mother, but it has not worked in years. She produced a small silver box from her bag. It was so brightly polished that it seemed to suck sunlight from outside the store in order to add to its luster. Kayla caught sight of her own reflection in the lit, clear eyes of the deepest brown. Lustrous, raven-dark hair, soft lips that verged on pouting. She liked to think that everyone would make a fuss over her, even if she was not the daughter of the most powerful man in Yodia. She handed it to the clockmaker, who turned it over in his hands as if it was a live mouse. Carefully, he placed a thumb against the latch, and the top sprang open soundlessly. Ah, he said. Then he repeated for emphasis. Ah. Kayla was suddenly sure that the clockmaker had never seen such a device in all his days. It is supposed to play music when it is open, she said. Yes, said the clockmaker quickly. Yes, of course it does. He closed the box and turned it over in his hands a few times. Then he touched his fingers to his lips, his brow pursed, and set it down on the counter. He looked up at Kayla and smiled, a kind of greasy leer. Let me call my assistant for this one. Young eyes and deft hands and all that. Without waiting for her response, he turned and shouted toward the back of the shop. Assistant! Counter! Kayla looked in the direction of the shout and saw the clockmaker was addressing a slender blonde man who had been working at the bench toward the back. She had not noticed him because he had not risen and come forward when she entered. The fact struck her as odd. Everyone rose and came forward when she entered. The young man was tall, but not too tall. Lean, but not too lean. And handsome, but not in an obvious way. His hair was the color of white gold, pulled into a simple ponytail. He ambled toward the front counter, raised an eyebrow, and said, How can I help you, good lady? Upon hearing his accent, Kayla was doubly reassured. The clipped tone of his words indicated he was an Argivian, and as such unlearned in how to treat true royalty. The king was weak in Argive, and she had heard the nobles did as they pleased. Second, and more important, she thought he was an Argivian, and young Argivians knew how to handle artifacts and old mechanisms. The clockmaker presented the silver box. Her Majesty has an item in need of repairs, he said, stressing an introduction enough so there would be no question asked to the station with the stranger. It's a music box. The Argivian picked up the box and turned it over in his hands a few times. To Kayla's eyes, he was much more sure of himself than the clockmaker had been. And the problem is? he asked. It doesn't work, hissed the clockmaker. It's supposed to play music. Oh, said the stranger calmly. Well, let's see what the problem is. He flipped the box over and pressed both thumbs against the base. The box gave a sharp, distinct snap. Caleb and Krug jumped at the sound, and the clockmaker looked as if he was going to faint dead away. Had the apprentice just destroyed a priceless heirloom? Caleb wondered. Then she saw that in reality, all the young man had done was slip a panel from the box's base. Within the case was a maze of gears and metal. It did not seem to belong inside a container so delicate and precious. Here's the problem, said the Argivian. His quick fingers were delicately probing and poking the apparatus. The main spring is knocked out of its socket. Hold on. 
He left the box on the counter and retreated to his own bench, returning with a thin tool with a crooked tip. This should do it, he murmured. There was a soft click, and the stranger smiled. There you go. He slipped the bottom panel into place with another loud sigh and handed it back to the princess. Their fingers brushed as he did so. Caleb and Krug took the box and opened it. Nothing happened. The matron scowled deeply. Caleb regarded the stranger coldly and lifted an immaculate eyebrow. The clockmaker suddenly looked apoplectic. If you've broken the princess's music box... Well, you have to wind it, said the Argivian, and Caleb was sure that there was a hint of smugness in his voice. You have the key, don't you? Key? said Kayla. Let me see, said the Argivian, holding his hand out. The princess handed the box back, their fingers touching again. The young stranger took the music box back behind the counter and rummaged through several drawers. Finally, he lifted his head and returned to the front of the shop. Key, he said. Found one that fit the winding peg. He held up a thick and elegant key made of dull, common metal rusted along one side. He inserted the key, gave it a few quick turns, pulled it out, and then handed the box back to the princess. Try it now. Kayla opened the box, and a soft, teeny music filled the shop. For a moment, she forgot the incessant ticking that surrounded them. It sounded like small pixies playing crystalline bells. There seemed to be one tune, and the second softer one playing underneath the first. She held the box to her ear and said, I hear two songs. The Argavia nodded. It's a contratempo. Two distinct melodies in different times weave in and out. I remember having a music box like that as a child, though, of course, one not so elegant and well-crafted. Kayla smiled, taking the compliment as a reflection on her. She closed the box, and the music stopped. Thank you, she said. The Argavian held out the thick key. Take this with you to wind it. The clockmaker lashed out an arm with the speed that bellied his girth, then held the key aloft, presenting it formally to the princess. The music box of Krug, with the key of Rusko, he said, laying the key in Kayla's dainty hand. The princess looked at the Argivian. You are Rusko? The Argivian smirked, and it was a definite smirk. He is Rusko. I am Urza. You'll be able to find a better-looking key made at any jeweler's. Thank you, good sir Urza, she said, with a gracious smile aimed directly at the young man. That smile had melted courtiers and dashing young captains. The Argivian named Urza smiled back, apparently unmoved, and said, Be sure not to overwind it. That's probably what knocked the spring out in the first place. Just turn the key until you get some resistance. He spoke to the matron, whom he apparently assumed would take care of such tasks as music box winding. Kayla smiled again, but did not offer her hand. She glided out of the shop, her matron in tow. The fat woman was scowling, as if she had not understood what just happened. Out on the street, the matron said to Kayla, The jeweler then, milady? Kayla put the silver box back into her clutch purse, but held on to the thick, slightly rusted key. Eventually, she said thoughtfully, but not today. I've had enough shopping for one excursion. With the entire procession, guards, matron, princess, hanger-ons, and well-wishers steered their way back to the Imperial Quarter and Daddy's Palace. Inside the clockmaker's shop, Rusko remained glued to the window until the last of the princess's procession had disappeared and the street returned to a semblance of normalcy. The princess, he said half to himself, rubbing his hands together. His voice had returned to normal. The princess of Krug was here, in my shop! With an overwhelmed music box, Urza shook his head. Don't they have a flunky in charge of such things? Mind your tongue, lad, said Rusko sharply. When news gets out that she was in my shop, admiring my clocks, we will have more business than we know what to do with. I didn't notice her admiring any clocks, said Urza. 
That's because you weren't paying attention, said Ruska with a chuckle. Which is a tragedy for two reasons. One, she is royalty, and you should always pay attention to royalty. They can hurt you if you don't. And two, even if she wasn't royalty, she's incredibly beautiful. I suppose I hadn't noticed, said Urza, retiring to his workbench. Not noticed, spat Rusko, a wide smile across his face. You must have ice water coursing through your veins, lad. That or such beauties are ten for a copper in Penrigan. Urza did not reply, and Rusko shook his head. The young man was a hard worker, but seemed to Rusko that he had no interest beyond his own bench. Three months earlier, the youth had appeared seeking employment. He had arrived in some Falaji caravan out of the desert, but his accent marked him as Argivian, and probably well-born as well. Rusko guessed he was some errant sign of a noble family. Probably got in trouble with elders for using the wrong soup spoon or something, the clockmaker thought. Rusko had heard the youth had approached the temple schools first, seeking employment as a scholar. Of course, his lack of religious training counted against him. He then sought employment among the guilds. His Argivian heritage told against him there too, for most of the guilds took native Yodians first. Rusko was a minor member of the clockmakers and jewelers guild, but poised to expand, he always reminded others, and was in need of an extra hand, and the Argivian would work for little more than room and board. Of course, Rusko appreciated the dedicated nature of his new assistant, but he worried that as an Argivian, Urza was missing the finer things in life. A dour and pragmatic people the Argivians were, in Rusko's opinion, and his new assistant confirmed that. I think she took an interest in you, he said after a moment. I noticed the way she looked at you when I presented her the key. The key of Rusko, said Urza, looking up from his work. Why did you make such a fuss when you gave her that key? Ah, said the clockmaker with a fatherly smile. Let me expand your education, young man. Rule number one, always sign your work. I don't just sell clocks. I sell the clocks of Rusko. He waved at the assorted timepieces lining the walls. Always attach your name to your work. That way others know what you did, and your fame spreads as a result. A hundred years from now, people will remember Rusko and his clocks. Only if they are good clocks, returned Urza. Aye, and ours are the finest, Rusko beamed. How do they know? Because we tell them so. Always show what you can do, and always sign your work. Urza had returned to the partially built clock on his bench, and now fiddled with the lever arm of a particularly recalcitrant timepiece. Are you listening to me? Rusko asked. We tell them, said Urza calmly. Show what you can do. Sign your work. I am listening to you. He did not look up. Three months. Three months the Argivan had been working for him, sleeping in the shops at night, and Rusko still knew almost nothing about him. He had employed an enigma, a hard-working enigma, an enigma nonetheless. Someone needed to show the young man that there was more to life than his work. Rusko sighed. Feeling anyone else suddenly appearing, that person would have to be he. The old clockmaker observed. You Argivians are such dull children, so proper and practical. Why does it hurt to admit that you've just seen a lovely vision? Urza set down the lever arm. Fine. She was pretty. Can I get back to work? It's a lack of gods, said Rusko, holding up both fingers to frame his point. The people of Argive don't worship that much, do they? Once, returned Urza. Not much these days. That's the problem, said Rusko, placing a palm flat against the work table. No gods, no life. You've reduced your goth to saying in psalms and parables and dry scriptures. Yodius gods are alive and well, with an overflowing pantheon and bring more in from the hinterlands. Bok, Mabok, Horiel the Swift, Gaia the Earth Power, Thindar, Rindar, Melan. 
a god for every occasion, said Urza dryly. Exactly, cried Ruska. Whatever you do, some deity approves of it, or disproves of it, or has some dire warning about it. It's much more exciting that way. Seems like a waste of energy, said Urza. Unless, of course, you're in charge of the temples that benefit from all this veneration. Ruska waved at hand at his assistant in frustration. You missed the point. A Yonian would at least admit that he saw a very pretty and powerful young lady. He enjoyed the revelation. You are just denying it, and in the process you stunt your soul. Urza set down his tools and took a deep breath, then smiled deeply and shook his head. I admit it, good Sir Rusko. She was lovely, radiant, and now that I've admitted it, what can you or I do about it? The warlord probably has her already promised to some powerful noble or faction leader to seal an alliance. Rusko looked hard at the young man, trying to determine if the Argavian was merely making fun of him. Then the clockmaker smiled. There you would be wrong, my lad. Oh yes, the warlord had a wedding all arranged, but the young man in question drowned. His ship reefed in a storm en route to Corliss, and they called it the Shielded Sea, by Bok and Mabok. No love loss, of course, he snorted. You saw how deeply she was in mourning. She is free for a moment, free to pursue her own interest. But only for a moment, said Urza, for your warlord probably had some other plan for his daughter, and then neither you nor I would ever see her again. Rusko sighed. The lad had all the romantic spirit of a box of nails. Urza turned once again to its workbench. Now, if you would like to get back to business, I found why this old cast and clock you have is losing time. The warlord did have a plan for his daughter, though not one that Rusko would have thought of. The warlord had spent his early days in battle, married late, and fathered still later. Kayla was the apple of his eye and the prize of his kingdom. She was not a gift he gave away lightly. Around him, the warlord saw a nation at peace. His last major campaign, in which he had seized and held the sword marches and incorporated them into Yodia, was a decades in the past. An entire generation, including his czar, had been brought up in a land without war. The warlord hated it. He was surrounded by soft men and women, courtiers who used words instead of daggers, old generals content to spend their declining years playing with their grandchildren, dashing young captains, who had earned their commendations by keeping clean uniforms, not by fighting an enemy. Soft. All of them, he thought. Kayla's betrothed had been the best of a bad lot, and the warlord had agreed to the only one after his own counselors made noise about a successor to the throne. And then the damn fool ran aground off Corliss and died. He did not want to see his line diminish, as had been the blood of the weak kings of Argive. His line needed strength. Kayla, his angel, was a strong young woman and deserved an equally firm mate. He made the announcement the month after the official mourning period for Kayla's intended had passed. His daughter was to marry the strongest man in the kingdom, and to find this man, the warlord had established a test. In the central court before the palace, he erected a great statue. It was made entirely of a single piece of jade, 20 feet in height, crafted with the warlord's finest face. It took a team of 15 men to winch it into place. His daughter's hand, he decreed, would go to the man who could move the statue from one end of the court to the other. When the first day of the contest arrived, Urza said it was the stupidest thing he had ever heard of, which statement set Rusko off again on a comparative study of Argive and Yodia. That is because you have no romance, argued Rusko, locking the shop behind him. Closing the shop seemed to be the only way to get the young man to leave its confines, and Rusko saw the contest as an excellent chance to expose Urza to the finer things that Krug offered. The idea of mighty quest and impossible task is in all of our folklore, he continued. Look at the saga of Bishan Kana, or how Alorian vied for Titania's love. Urza stopped in the center of the street. But the legends say Bishan Kana died on their wedding day, 
and Elorion was torn to pieces by Titania's hounds after she rejected him. Rusko made a harumphing noise. I didn't say it was an exact comparison. He headed off down the street to the court. Urza followed, shaking his head. The competition was set for the first of every month, when the warlord and Kayla would attend. Most of the city closed down for those five hours, while sturdy men tried to win the princess's hand. Servants cleared the court between the statue and the opposite end, and set up lines of benches on each side as a makeshift stadium. Urza and Rusko looked down, and saw that a group of thick stalwart men had already gathered in a rough line. The smallest was twice Urza's size, and several looked as if they could take on an elephant barehanded. From the scars on a few exposed torsos, it appeared some apparently had. At the far end of the court was a low riser. Seated on a padded bench were the warlord and his daughter. As Urza and Rusko pressed into the court, a gong sounded. The first suitor strode forward to meet his jade foe. He wrapped his massive arms around the statue's knees and gave a mighty heft. The towering figure did not so much as sway under his assault. The strong man grunted, regained his grip, then tried to lift again. The statue was immobile. The gong sounded again, declaring the attempt over. Another burly individual waddled forward. This one so muscular that he was wider than he was tall. He tried to pry his fingers beneath the edge of the statue, but was rewarded only with crushed digits. Another gong, and a third individual locked his arms around the statue's legs, bending at his knees for better support. This contestant gave a mighty bellow as he attempted to pull the jade figure from its moorings. The bellow became a scream as the muscular man suddenly let go of the statue and dropped to the court's floor, gripping another part of his anatomy. The gong sounded, and a group of temple healers rushed forward to attend to the fallen champion. Come, let us pay our respects, said Rusko, nodding his head toward the royal bench. There was a moving line in front of the warlord and princess. The Yodians passed before the pair, quickly bowing and touching their fingers to their lips in the fashion of that city. Rusko had joined the throng, dragging Urza behind him. The clockmaker made a full bow and finger kiss, but Urza merely gave a respectful head bob. And then they were past the royal couple. She looked at you, said Rusko as soon as they were past. She did not, said Urza, shaking his head. She's seen a thousand people this day alone. She smiled, countered Rusko. She is a princess, said Urza. Smiling is automatic for such people. Were I she, I would seriously be worried that one of those muscle-bound warriors will actually succeed in lugging the statue around. I don't think his majesty is breeding for intelligence in future generations. Rusko shook his head. You are being too logical again. Too pragmatic. Probably she is sure that no one will succeed. Sooner or later, her father will come up with a more reasonable task. What's wrong? Urza was staring intently at the pile of treasure to one side of the dais. What is that? He asked. Rusko blinked. Urza was pointing toward a large pile of gifts laid over by a luxurious swath of gold cloth. There were great swords, mirrored shields, and armor of the type that no one had worn in generations. Bins of rubies. Diamonds and sapphires glittered in the sunlight, accompanied by red velvet boxes holding crowns and diadems. That's the dowry, answered Rusko, and quickly added, I know what you're thinking with your logical mind. Why does the daughter of the most powerful man in Yodia need a dowry? Well, it's a tradition. Those are all old items belonging to the previous warlords. Some date back to the dawn of the nation. Some were made before Krug was even founded. What of the book? said Urza. Rusko had not seen the young man this excited in all the time he had been in Kruk. He squinted to see the object to which Urza was referring to. You mean the one next to the ivory shield? Yes, the large one, said the young man. What is it? Rusko leaned forward. It's a book, he confirmed. Definitely a book. 
Yes, of course it's a book. But look, on the binding are Thran glyphs, snapped Urza. Rusko blinked again. The young man was positively thrilled by the discovery. Rusko removed his lenses, rubbed them on his shirt, and put them on his face again. He shrugged. If you say so, can you read them from a distance? Urza was silent for a long moment, apparently puzzling out the geometric writing. Then he said, Jalum. Was there a Jalum in Yodia's history? Hmm, considered Rusko. I think there was an advisor or scholar, or philosopher, long ago before the temple schools. Is it important? Urza looked at the table laden with treasure, then back at the princess. As he looked, she was just turning away from him, apparently intent on the latest attempt to lift the statue. Her face was smooth and impassive, and very lovely in the noonday sun. Urza chewed on his lip, then said, Good Sir Rusko, I think I want to move a statue. Rusko could hardly contain his disbelief. And I want to fly to the moon and kidnap the harem of the Pasha of Sumifa. I'll even settle for my head to hurt less after a night of drink and brandy. But I don't expect it to happen. That's one rule in life. Don't expect the impossible, and you won't be disappointed. I do expect it to happen, said Urza, staring intently at the huge jade statue. Another contestant was trying to manhandle it, to no avail. But I will need supplies. He turned to the clockmaker, his voice hard and decisive. Metal bolts, iron root spurs, and other things. Will you help me? Rusko stammered for a moment. He was all for romance, but suddenly, this posed a threat to his own pocketbook. Well, I could give you an advance, he said reluctantly. But you were talking about a sizable outlay. Urza nodded, then said, Have you heard about the ornithopters, the Argavian flying machines? Rusko nodded. I've heard travelers' tales. He paused, then hissed a question at the young man. You know how they work? Urza nodded again, and said, I helped build the first ones. I could give you the plans. If I did, would you provide supplies for my work? Rusko felt both his heart and his pocketbook opening to the young man. He smiled. These are wonderful, said Rusko, thumbing through the plans. The first purchase the clockmaker had made was a supply of parchment and quills, and the young Argivan spent the night sketching out the ornithopters. First was a general description and neat lettering, then page after page of details showing how the levers in the pilot's housing function, how the wiring operated, of what materials the wings and struts needed to be made, and to what dimensions they had to be machined for perfect performance. Rusko was astounded. All this from the quiet scholar who had been repairing his clocks. A trained ape could build ornithopters from these plans. No, even Rusko could build an ornithopter from these plans. Marvelous, he muttered, leafing through the loose parchment pages. Amazing. A work of art. The clockmaker could scarcely contain himself, for the machine practically leapt off the page, fully realized. Urza smiled, but Rusko could not tell if the smile was in response to his compliments or for his current work. They had curtained off the back of the shop, and Urza began constructing a new machine there. Actually, it looked as if he were building a statue of his own to counter the jade one of the warlord. It looked like a beast of curved metal spars fashioned in the upright form of a man. Its limbs were metal frames, cross-bolted in thick lattice work. Its upper torso was thinner metal and iron root, and it pivoted at the base of the spine. One inelegantly long arm drooped at either side, each looking like that of a gorilla, a roughly hewn helmet, with a faceplate that flipped up or down, served as the head. The face guard was open now, revealing a tangle of cables and gears set around a single dull gem. It suddenly occurred to Rusko that Urza had smiled more in the past few weeks than in all the time the clockmaker had known him. They had not been the polite, 
for the customer smiles or smug Argivian scholar smiles or even put up with old Rusko smiles. The young man seemed more alive as he tinkered with his creation. Rusko had only made one suggestion during the entire process. You've got the knees on backwards, he said. Supposed to be that way, he muttered, not waiting for a reply. He burrowed back into the creature's chest with a spanner. In two months, the creation had blossomed from a mixed collection of parts that Rusko had gathered, cached, or borrowed from other shops into a towering giant. It was vaguely humanoid, and Rusko wondered if it was based on any living creature. It was not a question he wanted answered. Instead, late at night, as Urza was checking connections and splicing wires, he asked another question. Who is Mishra? Urza's rapidly moving fingers almost dropped the splicing tool he was holding. Someone important to you, I assume, continued the clockmaker. Urza stared at Rusko, and for a moment, there was a flicker of coldness on the youth's face. Just for a moment, the quiet, solemn man of the past months was back, and Rusko was afraid he had lost the smiling Urza forever. Then Urza sighed, and the moment passed. He turned back to his machine. How do you know of Mishra? Rusko fought a temptation to laugh. You rarely sleep, Urza, but when you do, you talk. You mentioned Mishra a lot. And another, Tokasia. Tokasia, corrected Urza. Tokasia was my teacher. She's dead now. Hmm, said Rusko. And Mishra? My brother, said Urza quietly. He peered more intently into the creature's interior. Alive? I suppose, Urza shrugged. He gazed up with the pretense of working on the wiring and leaned back. I don't know. We parted on less than friendly terms. Ah, said Rusko. There was a lot going on beneath the surface there, and he felt resistance to his questions. And you feel badly about it, he persisted. I wish there was something that could have been done to change things, said Urza. Rusko thought the youth's statement was probably true, as far as it went, but there seemed to be something more, something yet unsaid. A silence grew between the two men. Finally, Rusko broke it. In Yodia, we believe a man has many souls. Did you know that? Urza shook his head, but a small smile appeared at the corners of his mouth. A put-up-with-old-Rusko smile, the clockmaker thought. You don't wear the same clothes as you did when you were a boy. And you don't wear the same clothes when you're older, Rusko continued. The same applies to souls. You have one soul as a child, another as a youth, and several as an adult. Urza shrugged. I wear different clothes. I don't know about souls, though. Rusko stroked his chin. Most Yodian faiths believe that when you die, each of your souls is judged individually. Let's say your first three souls were basically good. Then you became a robber and a thief and grew a fourth evil soul. Then you repented and lived a virtuous life, growing a fifth more kindly soul. When you die, your souls are judged independently. The first three souls of the fifth will be rewarded for their virtue. The fourth soul will be sent to hell, destroyed or sent back depending on what gods you venerate. You are going somewhere with this? asked Urza, his eyes straight toward his machine. Rusko smiled. Only that you may be feeling guilty about what happened with your brother, or your late mentor. Don't. You have a new soul since you've arrived here. A Yodian soul. Let that be your guide. Urza stood for a moment, untangling Rusko's advice. Then he shook his head. Until I talk again with my brother, I will carry my regrets with me. But thank you for your advice. It's very... He paused, then broke into a wide smile. Much like Krug itself. Rusko smiled back, taking the young man's words as a compliment. 
So, he said, looking up at the titanic figure. Does it work? Not yet. Urza pulled a chain from around his neck. Rusko saw that the chain was attached to a large gem, a dark ruby flecked with streaks of multicolored fire. Urza climbed the stepladder until he was level with the great creature's head and pushed the gem inside. Standing on tiptoe, Rusko could see the young man touching the ruby stone to the dead, inner gem, and the creature's head. The gem and the creature's head began to glow, slowly, erratically at first, then with a stronger beacon, until it was as strong as the stone Urza held. It radiated with a sapphire light, shot through with sparks of white. It was, thought the clockmaker, like watching someone set a fire by placing a burning stick against another. As the new gem glowed, the creature began to move. It raised one arm, then lowered it, then raised it again. The gears and pulleys at the machine's arms and shoulder whined softly as they moved. Urza lowered the creature's visor. The light of the gem shone through its eye holes. There, said Urza. Now the machine has a new soul as well. It was the third month of competition, and for Kayla, it was proceeding much the same way as the first two. A cavalcade of horns and gongs sounded. A throng of well-wishers passed before her and her father, though there were fewer with each passing month, she noticed. A gathering of overly muscled warriors waited their turn to attempt the impossible. Again, there were fewer than previously. On the first day of competition, it had all been a great celebration. A month later, at the second trial, it was merely interesting. Now, two months after the first day of competition for her hand, Kayla felt the whole affair was becoming tedious. She reviewed the candidates and suppressed a shudder. This lot might look well behind a plow, or pulling one she thought wickedly, but as far as leadership material went, they were sorely lacking. Some part of Kayla's mind gave a mental shrug. What did it matter? After the wedding, she would make all the important decisions. At first, as each took his turn, she imagined what life would be like with each of the hulking brutes. That proved to be less than appealing, so she soon settled on guessing the nature of their injuries after they failed to move the statue. She had counted so far that day, 10 pulled muscles, 3 in the groin, 2 burst intestines, 7 cases of exhaustion, and a head injury. The last was a young man from the sword marches of the far north, who grew so frustrated that he headbutted the statue. The temple healers hauled him off the field by his feet. The current contestant was a grunter, gripping the statue and trying to pull it down on top of himself. Kayla did not care for grunters. She liked the bellowers better. They made more noise and tended to give up more quickly. The list had thinned out quickly, and there were now bare spots among the benches for the loyal subjects. She wondered how much longer her father was going to continue this exercise in futility. Probably, she decided, until one of the lesser noble families made a better offer for her hand. Daddy was always doing things in secret. Kayla was resigned to her fate. She had always been a dutiful daughter, and if her father arranged her to marry a Falaji, she would live in some desert tent beyond civilization. She was no stranger to court politics. For years, she knew she had been groomed to eventually marry in a fashion that would make Krupp stronger. The fact that the original target of that marriage had the misfortune to die before getting the chance to wed her did not change the process in the least. She looked at her father as she watched the proceedings. He had on a solemn face now. Cool, thoughtful, and regal. Would the common people think less of him if they knew that after the first day, he had cursed like a sailor at the failure of the contestants, storming around the royal suites for a good hour? Probably not, Kayla decided. Her father was a great war hero, a valiant warlord, and she suspected this farce being played out before her represented one last attempt to prove himself that there were still warriors in Yodia. And, she was sure, her father could have lifted the jade statue by himself when he was young. Another bellowing titan pulled a groin muscle, and Kayla saw the lists were empty. No, there were three figures left. One slender, one fat, and one shrouded in a great cape and hood, who towered over the other two. 
the Seneschal walked over to the trio, and there was a quick consultation among the two smaller figures and the ruler's advisor. The Seneschal moved to the warlord's side and spoke in a low voice. We have one more candidate, said the Seneschal, a quaking nervous man who both loved and feared his warlord. But it's a bit unusual. The warlord grunted. The big one? No, my lord, said the Seneschal. The thin one. He says he can move your statue by the strength of his mind, if you will but permit it. A smile crossed the warlord's face, and Kiglin knew that it was not one of his more pleasant expressions. Let him. But tell him the penalty for wasting the warlord's time. The Seneschal bowed and retreated. Kegla stared at the newcomers. The slender one was attractive, but it was only in proximity to the fat one that she remembered where she had seen him before. He was the Argivian clockmaker, the stranger with the wry smile and clipped accent. For a fleeting moment, Kegla allowed herself to think about life with this one. The prospect was not totally unpleasant. She also wondered if he could truly move the statue with his mind, or if he would sprain his brain in the process. Kegla's memory spun for a moment. Urza. That was the young man's name. She still had his key next to her mother's music box, and his companion, the fat one. She knew she had heard his name at the shop, but nothing came to her now. Urza stepped directly before the statue. Behind him stood the fat man, helping along the titanic-cloaked figure. There was a smell in the air, like the air before a storm. The Argivian bowed deeply. I thank the crown for a chance to succeed in a task that has defeated so many others, said Urza. The warlord waved his hand, urging the young man to speed up his speech. Kayla was sure that after today, Daddy would abandon this method of choosing a suitor. I will now move the statue by the strength of my mind, declared Urza. Reaching back, he pulled the cape from the large figure behind him. There was a collective gasp from the crowd as the cloth fell away to reveal the figure beneath. It was made of metal. It was in human form. At first, Kayla thought it was a living being, but immediately she saw that she had been mistaken. It was a machine. Of course, she thought. He is a clockmaker, after all, and an Argivian. The Argivians were always poking around the old ruins, trying to find powerful devices for their own use. I built this, using my mind, said Urza, and the fat man made a harumping noise. That, and using the services of good Sir Rusko, maker of fine clocks, the youth added. Let what I have built with my mind move your statue. The large humanoid machine lumbered forward, and for a moment, Kayla expected it to pitch over the stonework. As it walked, the Argivian stayed next to it, speaking to it, guiding each of its motions. The pair reached the statue. Urza pointed to one side of the statue, and the machine placed a hand, metal with fingers of polished wood, on that location. He points to the other side, and the machine placed its other hand there. Urza patted the side of the creature, and it began to lift. After the bellowers, screamers, and grunters, the silence that surrounded the artifact was eerie. There was a slight humming, like the space between the notes of Kayla's music box. The metal humanoid bent to the knees, which seemed from the princess's vantage point to be constructed backward, and slowly lifted the figure from the ground. There was a collective gasp from the crowd as daylight appeared beneath the jade statue. The contract pulled the statue straight up, holding it about a foot off the ground. Slowly, the great machine spun on its hips, its spine rotating all the way around, so its knees were pointed forward. Then slowly, the machine started to walk toward the opposite side of the court. It was slow going. The machine could hold the statue, but the courtyard had difficulty supporting both the machine and the statue. Paving stones crushed beneath the giant's feet, and at one point, the great metal creature pitched precipitously to the right as the stones turned to dust beneath the weight of its tread. There was a whining noise as wires spooled through pulleys and Kayla was sure she was about to see the mechanical equivalent of a groin pole. Urza was at the machine side at once, examining the problem and shouting orders. The great metal thing responded, tipped the other way, and at last reached its final destination. Urza gave one last command, 
and the machine set down the jade megalith so that it faced the royal dais. The crowd applauded. Some fled the sands to tell their friends the king statue had been defeated by a metal creature made by an Argivian. Kayla found herself on her feet, applauding as well. But one glance at her father stopped her. His face was a storm cloud, and veins throbbed at his temples. Wordlessly, he rose and turned away from the dais, thundering back into the palace. Ever dutiful, Kayla rose as well, but allowed herself the opportunity to look once more at the talented Argivian. He stood there in the center of the court, his machine next to him, the clockmaker on the other side. The common people were already spilling into the courtyard to congratulate him. On his face was a wide, beaming smile. She decided it was a pleasant smile, and smiled back at him. She did not stop to see if he saw her mark a favor, but instead turned and followed her father through the palace doors. She only hoped the warlord would reach a room with thick walls before he exploded. It took 15 minutes for the warlord to stop cursing, and another 15 before he was using coherent sentences. Kayla, the seneschal, Kayla's matron, and a brace of nervous courtiers waited for the storm to abate before even venturing an opinion. The temerity, he shouted at the rafters. The insult! How dared that... that... His mouth opened and closed for a moment, until he found the proper word. Weed! That Weed thinks he deserves my daughter's hand in exchange for some parlor trick. Well, said the trembling seneschal, you did say her hand would go to whoever could move the statue. The warlord grunted harshly. And you did allow him to try, said the seneschal, gathering strength as he spoke. He said he would move the statue with his mind. But he didn't, bellowed the warlord. That wind-up machine did all the moving. Well, said the seneschal, your daughter could marry the machine. Kayla stifled a giggle, but the joke prompted another cascade of war camp obscenities from the warlord. The seneschal fled under the assault, and, Kayla thought at the time, out of the discussion entirely. And you, roared the warlord, turning to his daughter. What have you to say of all this? Say? cried Kayla. She was suddenly indignant at being the target of his yelling. I had no say when you wanted me to marry that hapless mariner. She charged, stalking toward her father. I had no say when you decided to award me to the strongest ox in the kingdom. So now, when someone has finally beaten you at one of your little games, I suddenly have a say? The warlord stared at Kayla, stunned by her outburst. His shoulders sagged with defeat. I just wanted what's best for you, but to have to give you to this foreigner, this... Argivian, this weed. You are the warlord of Krug, said Kayla coolly. You can do whatever you want. You can banish him if you want. But if you want my opinion, here it is. He has a pleasant face, a good shape, and seems rather bright. I would not mind being his bride. The warlord's brows furrowed, and Kayla wondered which part her father was thinking about. The fact that she would not mind marrying Urza, or the fact he could have the Argivian banished. Behind her came the squeak of the heavy timber door, and the seneschal poked his head back in. What? snapped the warlord. Kayla thought the seneschal might evaporate entirely. To her surprise, the nervous bureaucrat stood his ground and managed a convincing mule. A visitor requests an audience, my lord. The weed? snarled the warlord. Tell him we have not yet ruled as the legitimacy of his little trick. Not the... the seneschal gulped and continued. Argivian? His up. Sponsor! The warlord looked at Kayla, and the princess nodded vigorously. Her father could bully most of the staff. Perhaps the little clockmaker had a better chance of making Urza's case. At first, it seemed a vain hope. The clockmaker bowed three times before reaching the warlord, each bow being a deep, knee-buckling affair that consumed time and further shredded her father's patience. 
As Rusko rose from the third bow, Kayla walked to his side and helped the overweight merchant to his feet, escorting him to the warlord. Your grace, and your highness, gasped the fat little man. Conqueror of the sword marches, bearer of prosperity, master of our fates. The warlord flapped his hand impatiently, while Kayla wondered if the clockmaker talked that way in real life. I bring two messages, said Rusko. The first is from my boon assistant and companion, good Sir Urza, the Argivian. He paused and waited for a response. Go on, snapped the warlord, biting off his words as they were bits of meat. The clockmaker cleared his voice. Sir, Urza says that he understands if you choose to rescind your challenge, though he would be very disappointed in losing the companionship of your lovely daughter. He bowed to Kayla, and the princess returned it with a nod. She wondered if what the clockmaker said about Urza's disappointment was true. Is that it? asked the warlord. The first message, yes, replied Rusko. And the second? inquired the warlord. The second is for me, said the clockmaker. He lowered his voice somewhat. And this is it. He reached into his vest, pulling out a sheaf of papers. He handed them to the seneschal, who in turn handed them to the warlord. The ruler flipped through the pages and grunted. And these are? Lands, my grace, said Rusko. Lands for a flying machine, an Argivian flying machine, designed by the talented young good Sir Urza. The warlord looked at the clockmaker. To the plans? To the clockmaker. Your Argivian knows how to build flying machines? Do they work? The clockmaker bowed deeply. I do not know for certain. Two months ago, I could not tell you that his mechanical man would work. But it has. The warlord looked at the papers a third time. And the Argivian might have other secrets locked up in his mind, he said, almost to himself. I would presume so, said Rusko. He is a private man, close to all but those closest to him, definitely in need of a woman's touch to bring out his best. Again he bowed to Kayla. The warlord grew silent, and Kayla knew he was weighing the alternatives. Finally, he said, Daughter. Did you mean it when you said you did not mind marrying this talented weed? Kayla gave a small nod and said, I spoke truly when I say he is the best candidate you have found so far. The ruler gave out a deep sigh and rubbed his eyes, handing the plans back to the fat clockmaker. He spoke. Very well. Then let us go back and congratulate my future son-in-law. The ceremony was ornate, even by Yodian standards. Krug had more than 30 major temples and a host of smaller ones with important patrons and everyone wanted to have a say in the wedding. Kayla tried to count the number of officiating priests but gave up after the 15th or 16th. It was tediously long. Sermons were read. Prayers were chanted. Spirits were banished. Gods were invoked. More sermons. More prayers. The couple kissed icons. They placed hands on scriptures. They danced around a ceremonial pyre. They were doused with blessed water and drank sanctified wine. They freed a dove and burned a squirrel of regrets. They paraded beneath unsheathed blades. They received benedictions, blessings, and well wishes. In deference to Urza's Argivian heritage, each wore a gold circuit on his or her brow, each of the circuits joined by a single silver chain. Kayla could not say at what point during the day she was officially married to Urza, scholar of Argive, new chief artificer of Kru. All she could say was that by the end of the day, there was no question that she was well and truly married. And through it all, Urza was understanding, not impatient in the way most men were about such things, 
Daddy was visibly uncomfortable after the seventh responsive reading, nor was the young man visibly bored or apparently making a show of being tolerant. He seemed to be taking mental notes on everything he saw and commenting on nothing. She expected to see that smug or guiding smile during some of the more rustic and traditional parts of the ceremony, but he took those with good grace as well. After the interminable ceremonies was an equally long procession through the streets as the people waved and cast multicolored streamers and wave-colored torches. And then a long feast of several dozen courses, each course broken by long toasts from anyone who felt he had something good to say about the princess and her surprising, if still generally mysterious, groom. And when at last, the ceremonies and the processions and the feast were done, long after the midnight bell had sounded, the couple was escorted to their own wing of the palace, into the bridal chamber. The diary had been placed there, along with some of the more tasteful gifts of various powerful well-wishers. The bed was made with sheets of all moss silk and dusted with rose petals. Incense burned from a dozen small braziers, and the room was lit with candles. The servants left the newlyweds there, closing the doors behind them as they departed. Kayla took a deep breath and reached out to her new husband. Urza slowly took her hand, and the princess realized that the slender young man was trembling slightly and almost flinched at the touch. She wondered if he knew he was shouting his nervousness to her. Instead, she said, You have strong hands. Working with artifacts, he said, his voice rasping a bit. You need strong fingers. And a strong mind as well, she said, and drew herself closer to him. His body felt as tight as the spring in her music box. Kayla, Urza spoke into her hair. There's something I need to tell you. Kayla froze, but only for a moment. Levelly, she said, You can tell me anything. I, said Urza, then backed away from her and looked into her eyes. I've been told I talk in my sleep. She smiled and pressed two fingers against her husband's lips. It's all right, she said in a throaty whisper. I'm a good listener. And she kissed him. Afterward, Kayla's breathing was long and deep. She slept on her side, nestled against Urza's lanky frame. He touched her brow softly. She squirmed in bed, rolled over, and fell in still deep slumber. Quietly, Urza rose from his wedding bed. The sky was still an hour from lightning, and the city of Yodia was quiet beneath his window. Beyond his sight, a city exhausted by its own celebration lay wreathed in sleep, and only a few lights still shone between the castle and the Marjun River. Slowly, Urza crossed the room. He extinguished each of the guttering candles in the room, save one. This he took to the accumulated diary. He looked over the pile of treasure, then carefully knelt down and extricated a heavy book marked with thran glyphs on the spine, the tone of Jolum. Urza took the book to his writing desk on the far side of the bedroom. He set the candle in its holder and looked at his new wife lying in the darkness, for a long time. Then he opened the ancient book and began to read. 